I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music feuds and beefs and long-serving resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And I'm so excited for this one. I can't even hide it. We've got Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. You know, oh, beautiful. It, it's incredible. Because, you know... Bob Dylan is an artist with many faces. There's the Woody-worshipping protest singer. There's the pill-popping mod dandy. There's the Nashville troubadour. There's the born-again Christian. But we never really get to talk about Bob Dylan, the bad boyfriend. You know, it remains (laughs) really tragically under-discussed. And I'm kind of kidding, but this whole story really does kind of humanize him in a way that I think is really rare. And, you know, especially because Lord knows Joan won't stand for, you know, any deifying, which, you know, God bless her. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be up front in this episode. Um, Bob Dylan is my favorite artist of any kind. He's my favorite musician, my favorite writer, my favorite persona, or I guess set of personas. Uh, he's my favorite everything. But I'll admit that whenever I watch a Bob Dylan documentary or read a Bob Dylan book, and trust me, I've like watched many documentaries about this man and read many books, I'm always excited to hear from Joan Baez uh, because she knew him in a way that I feel like most people don't know him. Not that she understands him exactly. I mean, she said up front that she doesn't understand him, and I don't think anyone really understands Bob Dylan. But uh, she's witnessed the less mythic version of Bob Dylan, shall we say. I mean, she was there at a pivotal point in his career early on. She played a major role in making him a star. And she observed the changes in him as he became this iconic figure in the mid-1960s. And it's true that she has some like pretty withering things to say about him. And like we're going to go through that in this episode. But I, I feel like there's also genuine admiration and even affection that she still has for Dylan. And I feel like the reverse is true as well. I think Dylan still has a place in his heart for Joan Baez. And you mentioned the crappy boyfriend thing 
earlier. I feel like he's like expressed remorse for that, although maybe not as much as he should have. Right. It took him, I'd say, about a good half a century, which, you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations <laughs> is on apologizing for being a bad boyfriend, but that's pushing it. I don't, you, you mentioned understanding Dylan, which I think is such an interesting choice of words because, you know, any other artist where I own like more than two thirds of their discography on multiple formats, read half a dozen books on their lives, watched hours of documentary, I would consider myself a pretty major fan. But for Bob Dylan, that's just like entry-level Dylanology. That's just like Dylanology, oh, yeah. the syllabus for like Dylanology 101. And it's just so interesting. It's the intensity of his fan base is just so total. I mean, obviously that speaks to the depth and quality of his work, but it almost makes me fearful discussing him because there's just so many interpretations, not only of his lyrics, but even just like his interviews. Like, what did he mean when he, when he said that? So I don't know. It, he's such a fascinating figure. And I feel like uh, Joan, on the other hand, just doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't coat it in, in any kind of imagery whatsoever. She's so much more direct. So I almost feel like in this story, it kind of tends to skew more her way because she actually lays it all out there, whereas Bob has been much more opaque over the years. But even if it is skewing her way, I feel like she's been, again, pretty even-handed right. in like the documentaries I've seen. And you know, again, like she'll make it clear when he was a jerk, but then she also is very sure to say that she thinks he's a genius and that she's very moved by what he's done. I remember one documentary, she said, you know, no matter what Bob Dylan does, all is forgiven as soon as he starts singing, <laughs> you know, which I think is an incredible thing. I think what draws me to the story is that it reminds me in a way of like A Star is Born, oh, you know, yeah. that classic showbiz love story, except the genders are reversed and no one died. Thankfully. Thankfully. It also reminds me a little of a previous Rivals episode that we did, our first one, which was on Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Ooh. Although I wonder if in this scenario, if Bob Dylan is Stevie Nicks. I can see that. I, I'm going to vote that Joan is more Stevie, not only because I find her to be the more sympathetic character in this, and I find Stevie the, to be the more sympathetic character in Fleetwood Mac, but also I think about how Stevie supported Lindsay back when they were first making music together. She was taking waitressing jobs and maid jobs and stuff while he stayed at home and wrote. I feel like Joan kind of played a similar role to Bob, kind of giving him that platform to be the most Bob that he could be and to really kind of, he could sort of follow in, in her wake, so to speak. And, and uh, I mean, because she literally gave him an audience. I guess I feel like Bob might be the Stevie because she, he ended up being the bigger star. Mm. And Lindsay was the stronger one at the beginning artistically, and then Stevie surpassed him. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves we should get into the background of this story first before we start comparing Bob Dylan to Stevie Nicks, perhaps. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into this mess. So Joan came on the scene first. Her father had taken a faculty position at MIT. So Joan got her start singing at coffee shops and small clubs around Cambridge in the late 50s. And she was still just a teenager. It was crazy how young she was. And she met a guy named Bob Gibson, who was a big key figure in the folk music scene at the time. And you know, the, the, uh, the folk song, All My Trials, kind of a, like a, a, an anthem at like early 60s protest marches and stuff. He was the guy who popularized oh, yeah. that. Great, beautiful song. Uh, now, in many black and white documentaries, yeah. you'll hear that yes. song. Yes, it's like in the way that um, Fortune and Son would be like late 60s, All My Trials is like the early 60s standard stock, <laughs> like early 60s documentary go-to song. So Bob Gibson, big deal invites Joan to sing at the Newport Folk Festival in 1959, the annual folk summit for, for you know, Pete Seeger and the whole, the whole gang. And that's really what launched her career. And they, they sang two duets. They sang Virgin Mary Had One Son and We Are Crossing the River Jordan or the Jordan River. 
And the response was absolutely overwhelming. It basically led to her getting her first record contract in 1960 when she was 19 years old. She released her self-titled debut. And it became this really unlikely hit. It was just a bunch of traditional folk ballads, and it made the top 20. And she very quickly became probably the most recognizable mainstream figure of the folk revival, this side of like the Kingston Trio. She notched a couple gold albums in the early 60s. She's on the cover of Time magazine, was on TV all the time. And I think it was a mix of incredible talent. I mean, you know, her, her piercing soprano, incredible intricate guitar work that I think Bob Dylan later said that she could play rings around him. So there was definitely that. And, you know, I hate to say this, and I say this with all due respect to her musicality, her looks and her image played a huge role. It's the early 60s. This is the time when JFK, uh, a lot of people think that the election that year in 1960 uh, went in his favor because of the televised debates with Richard Nixon. Uh, media is becoming a lot more immediate, and she has a look that plays really well. Yeah, I'm going to be a little more frank and say <laughs> that Joan Baez is a beautiful woman. Yes. Okay, and she sounded great. She looked amazing. She looked like a pop star while also having the credibility of, like you said, she was a great guitar player. She could sing beautifully, and she was whip smart and had a real political consciousness. So, yeah, it was like the complete package with Joan Baez. Oh, yeah, they called her the Barefoot Madonna in the press, which I always thought was a great, great name. But but you're right. She's not only uh, talented and beautiful— Absolutely brilliant. And this is showcased in her political activism. She goes down to Mississippi to help integrate schools. So many examples of her just in public taking these great moral stands. And she really kind of becomes like sort of the, the social conscious of the folk scene. And uh, many of her songs are embraced by all the protest movements of the time. Uh, she influenced a whole generation of rising singers. Judy Collins, Emmylou Harris, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt, all ciders and inspiration. As does a young Robert Zimmerman who's watching her on TV in Minnesota. Uh, in his 2004 autobiography, Chronicles, he talks about seeing her on TV for the first time. He wrote, I couldn't stop looking at her. Didn't want to blink. The sight of her made me sigh. All that, and then there was the voice. A voice that drove out bad spirits. She sang in a voice straight to God. Nothing she did didn't work. Beautiful thing to say about someone. Yeah, he's very effusive. Although, I, there's another quote that he had. Um, I think it's in the No Direction Home documentary where he said he saw her on TV and he said, oh, I think she needs a singing partner. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely very Dylan-esque type balance there of like genuine reverence. And he was also having some bravado there in the documentary. Joan and Bob end up meeting in 1961. And this is, I think, a little bit after Bob had arrived in New York. He arrives in January of 61. And... Her reaction to him, I think, is similar to like how a lot of people reacted when they first saw Bob Dylan, that he was this sort of dirty street urchin-looking <laughs> character, and he had a lot of like baby fat on his face. There wasn't really anything exceptional about him, really, like when you first looked at him. Um, but, of course, Bob Dylan ends up going through an incredible artistic and personal evolution during this time that even now it's like hard to comprehend like how quickly he became Bob Dylan, <laughs> the guy that was going to be writing these incredible songs that uh, we still love today. With Joan, it seems like, you know, because she wrote in her memoir about, again, like not being terribly impressed by him. But on the other hand, she did have enough foresight to recognize the quality of one of his earliest songs, which is Song to Woody, which is, I think, the only song that he wrote for his first record. Uh, otherwise, that first record is like all covers. And the types of covers that like other folk singers in New York were playing at that time. Of course, 
His second record, which comes out in 62, Free Will and Bob Dylan, is the one that has Masters of War and Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and Blown in the Wind and Girl from the North Country. And he's already becoming Bob Dylan at that point. But Joan meets Bob, isn't terribly impressed, but wants to play one of his songs. Bob, of course, meets Joan. He's already seen her on TV. I imagine him having like the wily e. Coyote eyes, you know, that like, bug out of his skull. You know, because not only is this a celebrity, essentially, but she's, again, like, as we said, she's this beautiful, charismatic woman. And it seems like the attraction soon became mutual. And I wonder to what degree Joan was just sort of drawn in by the exploding talent that Bob Dylan was starting to display at this time. But at any rate, she ended up inviting him to uh, her family's home in Northern California and she really starts taking him under her wing. Like, you know, he didn't have a lot of money at this time, but she provided a space for him where he could start writing these songs. And it's interesting because, like, I think about there was that Martin Scorsese documentary that came out in 2019, The Rolling Thunder Review. And there's a famous scene in that movie that we're going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, but in that scene, Bob Dylan makes reference to being at this house near the Pacific Ocean and writing songs very quickly. And I assume that that's a reference to this time, you know, like when they were first kind of getting together. And again, having this dynamic of him being this unusual guy with a squeaky voice and her being this big star that is going to like show him to the world. I mean, that seems like what they were at the beginning. Absolutely. I mean, she would invite him to perform with her on many occasions, most famously at the Newport Folk Festival in, uh, in 63, she was kind of repaying the favor from Bob Gibson. And that is sort of like, in, similar for her, the moment that he really just goes stratospheric. I mean, you, you couldn't craft a moment that is more perfect f for his sort of ascension, you know, he, where he's sort of part of the continuum of Woody Guthrie to Pete Seeger to Bob Dylan. He closes, I think, the first night of the festival with every, he's joined on stage by Joan, Pete Seeger, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the SNCC's Freedom Singers, and they all join hands and sing Blown in the Wind and We Shall Overcome. It's a beautiful moment, and that really is kind of when he arrives. Um, and Joan is still bringing him out on her tours, and there are people booing him. And she, I think she wrote in her memoir, she had to get all school marm and kind of wag her finger at them and say, no, look, I know this guy sounds a little weird. I know you're sort of used to my pitch-perfect voice, and he sounds like Bob Dylan. But listen to the words. This guy is a genius. Oh, it's so good. I mean, and she tells this great story, too, when she's trying to get him a hotel room. And I guess he's turned away because he he's still, like, in full Woody Guthrie attire with, like, you know, rope for suspenders and stuff like that. He looks like he just came off the back of a boxcar. And they wouldn't give him a, a room. And she has to pull her, you know, do you know who I am card, basically. And, uh, and, and she goes over to him later, and he'd written When the Ship Comes In based on this whole exchange, which she always thought was such a true mark of his talent of just of feeling just so uh, rejected. And responding with this absolutely incredible song. Yeah, you know, like when you were talking about that Newport moment, it just made me think of, like, that's the moment, if we're going to compare this to A Star is Born. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bringing the Star is Born analogy into this episode. <laughs> in this scenario, like, Joan Baez is, is essentially like the Jackson Maine figure, bringing in Bob Dylan, who is the Lady Gaga, if you will. And uh, they're going to sing Shallow together. And this is the moment that it turns Bob Dylan slash Lady Gaga into a star. Is that a fair summation of like what the scenario is? I think it's absolutely a fair summation. I think also there's the added element of Joan being sort of the honey 
to, for Bob's songs. I mean, a lot of people at that time in the early years of Bob's career aren't listening to him because they're so turned off by his voice. But Joan sings his songs for him and kind of it, it's what's able to put his songs across to a mass medium early in the career when they're not really used to how he so sounds. So she's providing the honey, but she's also pushing Dylan in a more political direction. Of course, he's already writing these great anthems that people will be singing at marches for the next 50 plus years. Again, Blown in the Wind, Times They Are a-Changing, Masters of War, With God on Our Side, all these wonderful songs. But it seems like one of the first cracks in their relationship is that Joan wants to go even farther in that direction at the moment where Bob wants to pull back, right? Right, I mean, she's like literally in the front lines down in Mississippi. I mean, Bob goes down there too and he sings uh, Only a Pawn in Their Game and when the ship comes in later that fall to vote, voter registration rally. But he really is trying to back off. He doesn't want to be the guy. He doesn't want that responsibility. And she later expressed remorse for trying to push him further and further into sort of engaging in acts of civil disobedience. And I think Joan got arrested untold number of times in the 60s for being at the... Um, on the front lines of when the troops were being shipped off to, for, to Paris Island and different uh, different places where uh, boot camps and things like that. He didn't want to do that. He really didn't want to be that guy. And she ex- was expressed remorse in later years for not recognizing that his acts were the songs. That was his gift to the movement, not being yeah, in yeah, the front I wonder, line you know, and this is going to be me psychoanalyzing Bob and Joan here. I wonder if on some level... Bob Dylan started to look at Joan Baez as like a symbol of like what he was starting to resent about the folk world. You know, the strident politics, the musical conservatism, like the rigidity of that scene. It's, you know, obviously we all know the Dylan Goes Electric story and him writing songs like Positively Fourth Street, where he is really lashing out at those people. And I just wonder if he came to look at Joan Baez, who, again, was this beautiful symbol of that music scene, really was like the figurehead in a lot of ways, at least like in the pop music end of folk music. I just wonder if maybe that fueled how he came to look at her and how he starts to treat her as their relationship starts to crumble a little bit. Um, Like I think about, I don't know if you remember this scene in No Direction Home, there's there's an interview clip where Joan Baez is talking about how at one point Bob Dylan said to her, hey, let's go headline Carnegie Hall or or some other big music venue. And Joan Baez says, well, what are you going to do with it? You know, the implication being that if we're going to become big stars, then it ought to be to further some sort of political end. And it's clear that like Bob Dylan, like by 1964, was not thinking in those terms in his career or in his art. Like he's looking at the beats. He's looking at like the French modernist writers And he doesn't want to be hemmed in. He doesn't want to be a politician. He wants to be an artist. And it seems like that really becomes something that is beginning to drive them apart. Yeah, absolutely. You can see that on his next release, Another Side of Bob Dylan, in uh, August 1964. And it's really apolitical. And and the reaction from folk purists were, it was sort of like a mini Dylan Goes Electric moment. They thought he was abandoning the cause and wasn't living up to his responsibilities. That was, I think, the underlying thing is that he has responsibilities, and Bob didn't want them. And, you know, I always think of that scene in The Life of Brian with the, uh, you know, the, the Judean People's Front. Have you ever seen the Monty Python movie? 
when it's just all these little cliques that all hate each other and, and just the, the infighting and everything. I always got the impression that he sort of viewed the, po- the protest movement by like late 64 like that as sort of this like incestuous group that really that was forcing him to be something he didn't want to be. I think the other thing that's starting to happen too around this time, and again, this is bringing back the stars born analogy here, where Bob Dylan is Lady Gaga. I just want to put that thought into the minds of listeners. <laughs> Bob, Dylan <laughs> Bob Dylan being Lady, Lady Gaga, Gaga. <laughs> and the stars born, where he is becoming a bigger star. And not only a bigger star, but like a hipper star. Like he's moving into a realm of music where like he is the point person for the culture. Like the Beatles are looking to Bob Dylan. The Rolling Stones are looking to Bob Dylan. Like whatever this guy's doing, we want to follow him. And Joan Baez, as great as she is at being that barefoot Madonna figure, you know, that that archetypical 60s folk singer, it really starts to become really like a passe idea. Like that kind of folk music is not going to be very cool as we move into the mid-60s. And I feel like that tension, that career tension, was also something that was really starting to hurt the relationship. Yeah, there was the great story where they were having dinner, uh, Bob and Joan, up in uh, in Woodstock, and there was a woman across the uh, the restaurant just sort of making eyes at him all night. And and Bob, meanwhile, is just pounding the vino. And by the end of the night, this woman comes over and basically just throws herself at him. And Joan is furious for two reasons. I mean, one, you know, another woman is now on her man's lap. And also, she she wrote, I think in her memoir, you know, I was used to getting that adoration, you know, that that was, had been reserved for me and not this drunken sot sitting next to me. Uh, so that had to hurt. But, you know, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it sounds obvious to state now, but his writing, he was a writer than a Joan, I don't think really was. And there was a great American Masters um, documentary PBS did probably about 10 years ago, and Steve Earle's interviewed. And he said, you know, folk music became more important when Dylan's songs were written. They set the stage that made rock and roll literature and therefore made rock and roll an art form. You know, if you're going to progress the art form of folk music, Joan, at that point, was really doing, you know, 80-year-old songs, 100-year-old songs, and, and wasn't moving it forward. And, and Bob was, and she, she definitely knew that. I mean, it was she, her admiration for his songwriting has been so total through the years. But yeah, it had to be painful for her as a fellow artist. And also, he wasn't being very nice about it. In, in the spring of 1965, they did a co-headlining tour, and it was very right down the middle. There's that beautiful poster that looks like some kind of turn-of-the-century French impressionist painting of, of the two of them. I think Joan's name is first, but Bob's head is a little higher. They went they really, really made sure to have it be 50-50. But uh, he, that was really, I think, when the relationship started to disintegrate. He was very hard to just do songs with because as you know, people who go see his endless tour now know he doesn't do a song the same way night after night. And so she would try to duet with him, and he would just put it in a different time signature just to mess her up. I mean, not specifically to mess her up, but that's just what he felt like doing that night. And if you're going to play a song with somebody that's in a waltz, and then the next night you do it in 2-4, that's difficult. And, and she would later say, you know, he's very unique. It's, it's admirable to want to change it up every night, but it's a pain in the ass when you're working with him and expecting something from him. And again, it gets back to that notion of expecting something from Bob, and Bob hates when... There are expectations made of him. So he was hard to actually perform with. And then also they had a huge blow-up fight. I guess his favorite jacket got stolen, and he unleashed all this rage, probably pill-related rage, at the security guard. And Joan was just like, what are you doing? Don't talk. You can't talk to people like that. That's awful. And then, of course, 
he completely rounded on her. They go out on stage and have an amazing concert. You know, they walk off stage together. Applause is dying down. She turns to him and says, wow, you should get pissed off more often before a show. That was great. And then she, he completely rounded on her again. And I think that's probably around when they begin to emotionally distance yeah. themselves, which sets the stage for. Yeah, well, because you're talking about the spring uh, 65 tour. But I think when people think about 65 and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, they're thinking about the tour that came after that, which was in England. And the tour that is documented in the legendary documentary, Don't Look Back. And when we think about Bob Dylan and Joan Baez in that movie, we essentially think about Bob Dylan being, it looks like either really stoned on weed or like just like wired to the gills on pills. Why can't it be both? You smoke the weed to come down from the pills and then you take the pills to get up from the weed. It seems like that was definitely the, uh, the system that Bob Dylan was on at that time. And look, like I said, I am a Bob Dylan fanboy. I'm not going to make excuses for like how he treats Joan Baez and don't look back because he is like pretty cruel to her. And it looks like she's like having a miserable time the entire tour. Uh, and you just are just like, why don't you just leave the tour? Which is something that she has said in subsequent years that she should have just left. But she was there, I think, out of a combination of like feeling lovesick for Bob and also having this wounded ego of knowing that she was in the process of being usurped by Bob Dylan, you know, this person that had once uh, been her opening act, essentially. But I think with Bob Dylan at this time, and again, this isn't an excuse, but I think it is worth noting that he was about 23, 24 years old. He was in the process of becoming the Bob Dylan, which entailed a level of adulation that I guess you could compare it to the Beatles. I think that's the only person that you could compare it to, even though the Beatles were much more commercially successful than Bob Dylan, they didn't have the level of importance spread among, spread among the, the four. four. And also they didn't, at least at that time, they weren't looked at with the same kind of reverence that Bob Dylan was. Like, Cause Bob Dylan wasn't just a pop star. He was like the voice of a generation. Like that archetype in rock music was affixed to Bob Dylan. I don't know if it was first, but to me, he's like the most obvious example of that archetype. Oh, yeah, I mean, he, he was at the March on Washington, you know? I mean, you, 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 he is there alongside Martin Luther King. I mean, you view him in a certain and way, also, especially in the early 60s. Yeah, he's, he's at the March, and he's also writing, like, the greatest songs ever, you know? And, and he's moving the art form forward in a way, going back to what Steve Earle said in that documentary, that people looked at him as, like, transforming something that had existed in one form, and now he's elevating it to something else. And that is the kind of reverence that Bob Dylan is having foisted upon him in 1965. Again, not excusing him for being a bad boyfriend, but I feel like those types of circumstances would probably affect anyone's mood or anyone's relationships with other people. Right. It must have been incredibly difficult. And, and it's all there on film seeing how he's basically being twisted into this very sort of like mean-spirited gamesmanship driven he's sort of like the prince of the kingdom you know like he knows that anyone will do anything that he wants and you can see it going to his head but you also see him being a brilliant artist at the same time and joan is basically caught up in this like like it's a meat grinder and and you feel terrible for her as this is going on uh, because not only is, you know, she showing up at these concerts and expecting to be invited to go on stage, because she wasn't actually performing on this tour, right? I mean, she was just there to hang out with Bob. And I think her feeling was that, well, she'll, like, he'll invite me up there to sing. 
but he never really did. So she's just sort of hanging out there for no reason, ultimately. Right. I mean, I think she later said she had her own sold-out show at the Royal Albert Hall while she was over there, but it meant nothing to her. She was just so demoralized by, you know, her 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 lover, first of all, and also this person that she respects so much artistically just wasn't paying her any mind at all. And there's that great scene in Don't Look Back where she's tinkering with uh, love is just a four-letter word that, that Bob's just written, and I don't think he'd even finished yet. And she's playing it to him and doing a beautiful version of it, which is such a, you know, the nicest thing one artist can do for another is to play their song. And he's just like looking daggers at her. He's like disgusted by it. And he just rolls his eyes. I don't think that's necessarily true. See, again, I am, I think, more empathetic to Dylan maybe than you are in the situation. Because when I look at that scene, I see a guy who is at his typewriter writing. And I don't know what he was writing. He was probably writing like an amazing song. (laughs) Because it's Bob Dylan in 1965. And he is in the process of like basically channeling an incredible amount of music, you know, at this time. Like, again, this is Bob Dylan in 1965. Like, there's really no one else you could compare him to the songwriting output that he was going through at this period in his career. And he's trying to type, and there's this woman there that he maybe doesn't want to be there, but he can't tell her that he doesn't want her to be there. And I don't know. It, I'm not excusing, again, the behavior, but I understand his perspective of, like, I am trying to move forward, and maybe this person belongs in my past and not in my present. You know, to me, that's the tension of that scene. And I don't necessarily feel like he's looking daggers at her. I feel he's more, like, maybe conflicted where he wants her to go, but he can't tell her to go. You know, there's a part of him that can't allow him to do that. There's something he says later in, um, I think it's a No Direction Home. And it reminds me of like a lyric that he would have written for like Blood on the Tracks or something. He says like, it's hard to be wise and in love at the same time. And I actually think that's a pretty apt <laughs> description of that. Um, even if uh, you watch it as an outsider and you feel like, oh, poor Joan Baez. Because that's my feeling when I watch it. Um, but I also feel like you know, maybe he was pursuing something greater and bigger and he didn't have time for that. You know, I, I don't know. Am I being too kind to Bob Dylan? No, I mean, I, I think in that scene, I completely see what you're saying. I, I feel as though, because we haven't mentioned Sarah, his future wife, Sarah, who he also brought on the tour, which is, you know, if, if you're going to bring two girlfriends on one tour, that's a bold move, I feel like. Uh, and, and Joan, they did a really good job of trying to keep Joan away from Sarah until Joan bought Bob a present. I think he bought him a blue shirt and went to his hotel room to to try to give it to him. And Sarah uh, answered the door and sort of quizzically was like, well, took the gift for Joan. Uh, Joan didn't know she existed. And I think that was the moment that she kind of knew that, that things were over. There was another woman in his life in a major way. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. 
You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So what's interesting to me is to look at this period of Bob Dylan's songwriting, because again, he was very prolific at this time. And, you know, I think even casual Bob Dylan fans could name like a dozen classic songs, like from the mid 60s that Bob Dylan wrote. But I know like you and I were trying to figure out like what songs did Bob Dylan write about Joan Baez? Because I feel like there's like a lot of conversation, you know, speculating on, on what songs are about her or what songs are about Sarah. And of course, Bob Dylan is n- never all that helpful. Right. Like in these situations, <laughs> he's never just like, yeah, that's about Joan. And, you know, that's my Bob Dylan impression. That was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a decent Bob Dylan impression. Yeah, like, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty stock. You know, it's pretty rich little. But, you know, what can I say? <laughs> But like what like what are the songs that people have like focused in on the most as maybe being about Joan Baez? Well, the one I always really thought was at least a line in Just Like a Woman. When we meet again, introduce us friends. Please don't let on that you knew me when I was hungry and it was your world. Because I just thought that really obviously references, you know, when, when he came on the scene and Joan was the queen of folk, you know, on the cover of Time magazine and everything. And he was this hungry, scruffy little street urchin kind of guy. Uh, oh, I always thought that song was Edie Sedgwick. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there are the, the references to amphetamines and pearls and stuff. So that and that's very Edie. So you, you're but, right. But that's that's interesting. I never thought of that line, but that does make sense that that could be a Joan Baez nod. And uh, and this is way in the weeds, but in She Belongs to Me, uh, he paints this picture of a powerful, independent, creative artist that he apparently gave Joan a... Egyptian ring wants, and there's the line, she wears an Egyptian ring, it sparkles before she sleeps. And which, again, that's a little too, that's some, that's some fan fiction right there, maybe. But I, that, that was always very <laughs> fascinating to me. And I always liked the line, she never stumbles, she's got no place to fall. And I always thought how that might sort of point to, to Joan being this sort of icon of the politically minded folk movement. And she could never break from that role without sort of losing face and losing her audience. Uh, 
which I don't know. That, that again, that might just be me projecting a little too much there. But I always thought that was an interesting line. That could also be like a dig too. Right. Oh, totally. You know, that, yeah, that she's like too pious to like ever, you know, fall from her perch of yeah. righteousness. I think of the song Visions of Johanna uh, Ooh, yeah. being a Joan Baez song. I feel like Joan Baez herself has f- talked about how she feels like that song's about her. And, you know, it's interesting in light of what we were just saying about that tour of England in 65, where you had this weird love triangle going on between Bob, Sarah, and Joan, because if you want to say that Visions of Johanna is about Joan Baez, there is a love triangle in that song. And essentially the idea is the protagonist of that song is with one woman, but he keeps thinking about another woman. And, you know, you can look at that literally. If you want to say it's about Joan Baez, is that about Bob Dylan saying that he still pines for Joan Baez or does Joan want to believe that's true? I mean, I tend to take a broader interpretation that it's really a song about feeling perpetually dissatisfied. That like whenever you get what you want, that it doesn't sort of quench the feeling of yearning that you always have inside of yourself, which is an extremely Bob Dylan sentiment. (laughs) I mean, obviously, that is sort of the modus operandi of his career. You know, like he's always kept moving. He always changes his songs. There's never a point where he feels like he's nailed it down perfectly. And um, it's what makes him such a brilliant artist, I think it may also make him an impossible person to have in your life. You know, <laughs> someone who's perpetually dissatisfied. It's interesting, too, looking at what Joan Baez wrote in response to Bob Dylan. Because, I mean, Baez, she's not really a prolific songwriter. I think she's known more as an interpreter of other people's songs. That's certainly how she got her start in her career. But she has written some songs about Bob Dylan. Like, do you know the song To Bobby from 1972? I just love how that really just encapsulates the differences there. You've got the, these incredible divisions of Johanna, and then you've got to Bobby. There's no no way to misinterpret that whatsoever, and I love that so well, much. She didn't about say her. Bob Dylan. That's true. She, That's know, true. It could it could just be any other Bobby, right. you know. But uh, Bobby yeah, Rydell. Yeah, exactly. Bobby V. Uh, Bobby Bob Barker <laughs> could be could be a song about the Price Is Right. Uh, but yeah, it does seem pretty clear that it's about Bob Dylan, and this is like kind of her angriest song about Bob Dylan because she's basically going at him for his lack of political activism. Like the idea of that song, she has this line in there where she says, you left us marching on the road and said how heavy was the load. The years were young. The struggle barely had its start. So the implication being that like, you bailed, dude. Right when we needed you. We had the civil rights movement going on in the early 60s and then you just like took off like by 64. And Bob... I know, like, you wrote this in the outline, and I never really thought about this, but you feel like the song Wedding Song from Planet Waves is, like, an answer record to to the, the Baez song? Yeah, I mean, I always thought, I mean, his songs could be about 20 different things all at once, but I always thought the line, it's never been my duty to remake the world at large, nor is it my intention to sound a battle charge. I always thought that was sort of his response to Bobby. It was like, you know, it was not, that was not what I set out to do. That's fine. If that's what you wanted to do, great. But that wasn't, that wasn't who I was. That's not why I I got into doing what I do. So then Joan Baez puts out her record, Diamonds and Rust, 1975, which is the Joan Baez record I know the, like the best. Cause I'm, I'm just going to say that like, I love Joan Baez as like a figure. I love her as an interview subject. I'm not a huge fan of her music. Like, I don't know how you feel about her music. I feel similarly. I I definitely appreciate her more as a political figure and as absolutely the most entertaining part of any Bob Dylan documentary. 
uh, and the most insightful. But this album I like the most because it comes from her. I feel like her interpretations of some of the older folk songs are indeed gorgeous. But, you know, I, I do, I'm more fascinated by when it comes from inside of her. And so this whole album, and she's later said that this album was really her, her peak as a writer in Diamonds and Rust, in particular the song, was one of the best she ever wrote. And, you know, it's really sparked from Bob. Yeah, that song, and there's another song called Winds of the Old Days, which seems like, you know, a pretty direct song to Bob Dylan. And both of those songs are much more melancholy than to Bobby is. It's reflecting on their relationship, looking back on it with some affection and as well as some regret. And I feel like Diamonds and, and Russ in particular is this song where I think she's trying to get the upper hand in a way with her in her relationship with Bob Dylan, because essentially at the end of that song, she implies that the man in the song. And again, I guess we'll just say that there's a protagonist and an antagonist in the song, and we won't necessarily say that they're Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, but they like probably are. They're based on some version of who they are. The implication in that song is that like the man wants to get back together, and Joan is the one deciding that it's not going to happen. So it turns into this sort of victory for Joan at the end of Diamonds and Rust. Is that a fair interpretation of that song? Yeah, she tells this story where she was in the middle of writing a song and, a phone, and she got a phone call in 1974. And I guess Bob called her out of the blue from a phone booth in the Midwest, which is amazing. <laughs> and right. read her all the lyrics to a song that he'd just written, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, uh, which I, I, I interpret as a, a very sort of Dylan-esque booty call, I suppose. Oh, yeah, he's like, showing off. Right, yeah. He's flexing. He's like, I wrote this I wrote this bomb song and you're going to love it. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to want to hook up, man. Cause like I'm, I'm Bob Dylan. I'm throwing straight heat at this time. Right. His marriage to Sarah was on the rocks. Uh, Blood on the tracks was, was not far on the distant or not far in the future. Um, so Joan turns back to the song that she was writing before he called. And now it, it's become about Bob. And it's this, I always took it as this really bittersweet tribute to their love affair written, you know, in her words, a couple of light years afterwards. And she's talking about this unwashed phenomenon. I love how whenever she refers to like 1961 era Bob, there's always like unwashed, unclean, sweet urchin, <laughs> street urchin. Um, just a filth, just a filthy man. Right. <laughs> a, a, a filthy little man. <laughs> Dwarfed by his guitar. Yeah. And so, and the best part was she, she throws in a dig over there about how she says that, that Bob, or should we say the antagonist, says that she writes lousy poetry, which I, I enjoy that being in there too. She... I, I just thought it's such a, a gorgeous song. It's one of the best kiss off songs, I think, of all time. You know, it's classy, it's witty, and it's ruthless, you know? And and Bob, for whatever it's worth, was not shy about saying that, you know, I, I, I think this is about me. And uh, oh man, to be I think he said this direct quote, to be included in something Joni had written. I mean, oof, to this day it still impresses me. It's it's a nice if you're gonna be the recipient of a song like that, you might as well be gracious about it. And I and I buy that. I feel like Bob Dylan, he's uh you know, he's a player in the game, man. Like, game respects game. If you write a good song, he's going to respect it, even if it's about him. And if on some level, you know, I don't know if that song embarrassed him or if it hurt him or anything, but uh, it didn't seem to, you know, spark any animus in him towards Joan at all. One thing I really like about Diamonds and Rust, like, even more than the title track, is that Joan Baez covers Simple Twist of Fate from Blood on the Tracks on that record. Oh, and yeah. on one of the verses, she slips into like this weird Bob Dylan impression. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I love her Dylan impression. It's it like the arrangement of that song. It, it's really weird anyway because you think of the original "Simple Twist of Fate" and it's this downtrodden 
romantic acoustic song where Dylan's just pouring his heart out. And like the Joan Baez version is this like upbeat, like very mid 70s LA rock like redo. Like it sounds like an Eagle song when she does it. And, and, but then she slips into this like kind of perverse Dylan impression in the middle. And I'm like, I kind of wish she did the whole song like that because it would have like registered more as like a dig on him, maybe. Or like, yeah, you wrote this song about the woman that you left me for. And now I'm going to play it on my record and kind of make fun of it by doing this voice. You and know, make it like, a happy song. Exactly. I'm going to kind of suck the soul out of it. And I'm going to make it sound like life in the fast lane, you know? <laughs> uh, but again, like, it doesn't seem like Bob Dylan minded that either because he ended up inviting Joan Baez to be on the Rolling Thunder tour, which I think is like my favorite Bob Dylan tour. Like, I love this era. And Joan Baez was like a huge part of that tour. Oh, yeah. Um, my favorite part of this entire tour is apparently Bob asked her, if, are, are you going to play that song? You know, the song about the blue eyes and diamonds, obviously diamonds and rust. And she played dumb and was like, oh, yeah, that old thing I wrote for my ex-husband? Sure. And you could just imagine Bob's face kind of falling and be like, well, ex, ex-husband? That was, for your, that was for your husband? And Joan was just very sweetly was like, yeah, yeah, who'd you think it was about? <laughs> Which, I really, I like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, and look. Again, it's Bob Dylan. He must have appreciated on some level, like someone throwing his own bullshit back in his face. <laughs> like, she's not going to admit it. Like, you would never admit it if it was the other way around. I mean, like, Bob Dylan wrote a song called Sarah about his wife. And, like, he kind of backed off from that, like, really kind of explaining the meaning behind that song whenever people would press him about it years later. So, I mean, he's done the same thing, obviously, in his own songs. You saw that Martin Scorsese documentary, right? The, yeah. the Rolling Thunder Review. I was on Netflix. It went up in 2019. I'm a big fan of that movie. One of the great things about that movie is that it uses a lot of footage from a movie that Bob Dylan directed called Ronaldo and Clara that came out in 1978. And like, you can't find it anywhere because I don't know if like Bob Dylan's embarrassed by this movie. I mean, it was really panned. It was like a four hour movie. There were like concert clips in that, but there's also like a like an improvised story in it. And like, it's basically about Dylan, Sarah and Joan are like the three main characters in it. Like I own a bootleg copy of Ronaldo and Clara and I've never gotten through it. Cause it's like really slow and impenetrable. I mean, my copy also looks pretty bad. Like, have you seen Ronaldo and Clara at all? I, I tried to watch some of it and I, I, it, I, it was unwatchable for me. I just couldn't, like, I found like a really scratchy, maybe it was the same copy of yours on online. And yeah, it just was too. I mean, he, and he directed that, right? Yeah, he directed it, and like, it's pretty pretentious. It's pretty hard to watch, but like, there's a lot of great footage that was shot during that time, and, and Scorsese was able to take a lot of that footage and turn it into like his own sort of wacky meta movie that came out in 2019. And for me, like, the most riveting scene in that movie is between Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. And I don't know if you remember this scene, but. Like, they're talking about their relationship in the past, and it's not clear. I mean, for one thing, I, I'm sure that this scene is staged, because there's no way that the camera just happened to come upon Dylan and Joan having this intimate conversation. I think there's, like, actually two cameras, like, shooting both of them. So it's obviously staged, but it seems like it's also based on some truth Like when you watch it. Like... I don't know if you have a read on this at all. I mean, there's like, the dialogue in the scene is incredible. Like, he says, you got married without telling me. And then she says, you got married without telling me. And then Dylan says, I married the woman I love. And then Joan says, I married the man I thought I loved. And then there's, like, a really long pause. And I'm like... And then he goes full Dylan. That's when he does the, like, you thought. You see, the thought, that's what'll mess you up. 
Yeah, he says the thought will mess you up, but like, and he kind of like digs into her a little bit. But like, when I watched that scene, I was like, are they going to start boning here? Like, <laughs> it is like electric when you watch it. And they're giving each other these like sort of like googly eye, you know, come hither looks. It's like pretty steamy. That, in the in the Stevie moment. and Lindsay analogy, this is Silver Springs on the uh, on the, the dance. This is the, uh, but like with more affection, I feel right. Like. I yeah, feel like Silver Springs is like hatred. I don't feel hatred here. I feel like are we getting it on here? Do we want to get it on? It's like should we get these camera crew out of here so we can have sex like on this bar right now? I mean, that's the vibe <laughs> I get from that scene, and it feels like that electricity really bounced through like a lot of the performances that they had together on that tour. Like their duets are like really sexy and like really playful and fun. Oh, there's that great one in, I think it was in Boston in, in November of 75 when Joan and Bob are up there at the mic. They're about to do, I shall be released. And someone in the crowd screams, what a lovely couple. And Bob just wants, wants to die. He wants to disappear into the floorboards. He doesn't respond to the fan. He can't look at Joan or the crowd. He just wants to disappear. Joan saves the day by just laughing. Don't make myths. Couple. Couple of what? And she puts her hand on Dylan's neck and they start to do this incredible version of I Shall Be Released. It's beautiful. But then there's this weird thing that happens where there's the song Oh Sister that Bob Dylan writes for the album Desire. And I mean, isn't there like a thing like where Joan Baez thought that that was about her? Like there's a line in there where he says, oh, sister, when I come to lie in your arms, you should not treat me like a stranger. Oh, sister, am I not a brother to you and one deserving of affection? This idea that like he maybe turned to her at a time of need and she like turned him away. And she kind of took it like, didn't she take it that way? And then she wrote her own song in response to that. Well, she wrote, in response to his song, Oh Sister, she wrote, Oh Brother. Again, yeah, Oh Sister, I always I always took to be at least about how she kind of rebuffed him when he called that night in 1974, and she she turned around and wrote, wrote Dimes and Rust. Uh, oh Brother um, is very to the point. This is on 1976's Golf Winds, and it, it's not Oh Brother in the biblical sense, like Oh Sister was very biblical. This is like in the Peanuts gang, like, Oh Brother, this guy again. Uh, great lines. You've done dirt to lifelong friends with little or no excuses. Who endowed you with the crown to hand out these abuses? Your lady knows about these things, but they don't put her under. Me, I know about them too, and I react like thunder. Rolling oh, Thunder tour? Yeah, I don't know. There you go. There you go. And then the, yeah, there's that line like where she says, because uh, when you hurl that Bowie knife, it's going to be when my back is turned, doing some little deed for you, and baby, will I get burned? So, Oof. again, this idea that like, oh, Bob, you're like a shitty friend, right. essentially. And it seems like that was the state of, the, of their relationship for like a long time. Uh, that they were had this sort of icy standoffish thing. And again, if you want to speculate on like, you know, was this driven in a way by like a second breakup in the mid seventies? Like, it seems like that's never been fully spelled out. Like if they actually hooked up again, or if there was just this weird sexual tension that was never acted upon. But because she only had good memories of the tour of the Rolling Thunder tour, right? She said that at least for like the first year, she said it was great. So yeah. Yeah, it seemed like it was positive, but then, like, in the aftermath, like, there was a long, chilly period between both of them. And one story I love, and it's a very creepy story, but it's from 1984, because there was this tour that Bob Dylan was doing in Europe with Santana, and Joan Baez joined this tour, and I think her 
belief at the time was that this was going to be essentially like a three-bill co-headlining tour, where in reality, she was being brought on as an opening act, essentially. So once Joan Baez realized that, she was very unhappy. And she writes about this in her memoir, In a Voice to Sing. And she tells this story about how I hate this story so much. There was, it was kind of a repeat of what happened like 20 years earlier, like when, you know, she was hoping that like Bob would bring her up to sing together. And like, I think he did a couple of times, but for the most part, not really, you know, he was doing his own thing and they're playing these stadiums and it's not really a great situation for Joan Baez. So like she finally decides that she's going to quit and she goes backstage to say goodbye to Bob. And Bob, I guess, he's just like looking disheveled and sweaty and not in good shape. And I'm, you know, I think it's pretty well documented that at this time, Bob Dylan, you know, was, I think, drinking a lot. I think he's probably taking a lot of drugs at this time. Like he was not in good shape. This was like about four years before he went on the never ending tour and like really started to kind of clean himself up and pull himself together and, and become the artist that he's been like in the last 30 years. I mean, this was like a low point for Bob Dylan. And Joan is like, I'm gonna, I'm taking off Bob. And she's wearing a skirt. And Bob Dylan like puts his hand up her skirt, like and rub uh, it just like brings his hand up her leg, up her thigh, and he says, like, hey, you you have great legs. Like how like why are your legs so good? She's like, uh, because I rehearse, Bob. I, I stand up a lot when I rehearse. And like she takes his hand. And puts it on his chest and I think kisses him on his like sweaty, <laughs> bloated forehead and leaves. And uh Oh man. It, it seems like for like the next like say maybe even like twenty-five years after that, it's like it's pretty cold between them. Oh yeah, I mean she she tells this story in her memoir in nineteen eighty-seven. And uh, I guess someone asked her about like, you know, did Bob respond to this story in, in your book? Because I mean the book, it, it paints a sort of warts and all portrait of Bob. I mean, it, it's not very flattering, but I mean, obviously she she pays tribute to his incredible artistry. But it's not the most flattering thing in the world. And she told the interviewer, yeah, no, I never heard from him about that. But you know what? What That's to be expected. I put out two full covers albums of his songs, and he never responded to those either. So, you know, go figure. Um, my favorite part of the book is when she says that he wrote Masters of War as a cash grab. According to her, Bob said, you know, when I drop dead, people are going to interpret the shit out of my songs. They're going to interpret every comma. They don't know what the songs mean. Shit, I don't know what they mean. So it very lifts the veil on the whole Dylan mythology, I think, in her memoir. Yeah, and I don't doubt that he said that. I feel like he has said as much in interviews over the years that he is very averse to, like, analyzing his own work. And he'll let other people do that, but I think he's very reluctant to, like, say what his songs mean or to like put any kind of importance on them. Although at the same time, he's not a humble person either. Like he will talk about how great of a songwriter he is and how there's no one better than him. So it is this combination of like not wanting to help out anyone who wants to understand his songs, but also feeling like that, like, yeah, I'm the shit, I'm the shit, but you don't understand it and I don't understand it and it doesn't matter. Um, I do think that like, one of the things that has come out of all the documentaries that have been made about Bob Dylan has been like Bob and Joan being able to communicate to each other, like through those movies. Um, like I think about in, in no direction home where I feel like there's a lot of, of affection that they express for each other. You know, they're never on screen at the same time, but um, there's that thing I said before about how 
Bob Dylan's trying to explain why he acted the way he did, like on that 65 tour. And he doesn't say like, I'm sorry in that movie, but I think it, it's, it's heavily suggested that he feels bad for what happened. And he has that line that I mentioned before about how he says, you know, it's hard to be wise and in love at the same time. And then Joan, for her, you know, on, on her side, I feel like she speaks more eloquently than anyone about like why Bob Dylan is a great artist. And she has a great line about how, you know, there's people in the world who don't care about Bob Dylan at all. And they hear his songs and they don't care. And uh, she says, but if you are interested, you know, no one reaches down deeper than Bob Dylan. And I always think about that because I think that's so true. And I think it's spoken by someone who did have this personal relationship with Bob Dylan, but also at the end of the day is like one of his biggest fans. You know, like she can articulate that point of view because she's like the rest of us who love his work. Um, and as close as she got to him and got to know him, you know, he's as much of a mystery to her <laughs> in many ways as he is to the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I always liked the thought that until she stopped touring in, in 2018, she sang something like half a dozen Dylan songs in concert. And she would introduce Diamonds and Rust by describing Bob as by far the most talented and crazy person I've ever worked with, which is, is beautiful, you know? I, there was an interview she gave recently where she said she was she was painting one day and put Bob's one of Bob's albums on and just started crying and just said, you know, good Lord, I know this guy. I got to sing with this guy. And so at that moment, any of like the bullshit between the two just sort of evaporated. And, you know, as you said earlier, there was that really at the end of the day, everything is forgiven when I see Bobby sing. I think that's probably the, the, the most perfect uh, absolution that she could give for him. See, and again, like, it's so nice to me that with all their ups and downs, that in this version of the Stars Born story, uh, no one ended up in they a garage, lie. like, <laughs> hanging themselves, you know? It's like, spoiler. It seems like they came to some mo moment of reconciliation, which is really great. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? 
a lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So this is the part of the episode like, where we talk about the pro sides for each part of the rivalry. And with Joan Baez, I think you and I have both said this before now, but like on a personal level, it seems like she was a very decent person to Bob. She genuinely loved him, genuinely admired his, his talent. And at a moment in her, in her career where she was a huge star, she worked really hard to give this guy a platform. And I mean, I think... Maybe Bob Dylan would have become a star anyway, even without her. But I don't think there's any question that like she expedited his his rise to stardom, and like he wouldn't have the career that he did in the '60s without her. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's really fascinating to think what would have happened if he would would have been just like you know another Dave Van Ronk or something like that if if it hadn't been for her, who was such a major star to 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 give him this massive audience. I do feel very sad, and I understand why it happens that any profile of Joan will inevitably include a reference to Dylan, but I don't think the inverse is ever true, even though she had a much bigger impact on his career than he did on hers. And I, I mean, chalk it up to just his gargantuan role in popular culture, sexism, her own frankness on the subject of lyrics and interviews. Whenever she was singing about him, she kind of let you know it. All the above, I don't know. But that always, that always kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's Bob Dylan. Right. You know, I think that there are so many people that are in his orbit that just get sucked in. You know, even like, you know, we talked about the band in a previous episode. I don't think the band would have the stature that they have if they hadn't have been associated with Bob Dylan. You know, like they put out great records on their own, but like their legend before music from Big Pink was created in large part because they were the backing band for Bob Dylan on that historic 1966 tour. And that they were the band that like made the basement tapes with him, like which I guess at that time would have been known as Great White Wonder, the the bootleg <laughs> recordings. But like just being in his orbit, especially at that time in the '60s, it just is going to overwhelm anyone who's next to it. I will say that I think that Joan Baez ultimately does benefit from her association with Bob Dylan. You know, as much as we talk about how she helped him at a pivotal point in his career. I think it's also fair to say that like a lot of the interest that people have today in Joan Baez is due to the fact that she did have this association with Bob Dylan at a very momentous time in music history and cultural history. I think without that, you know, we might think of Joan Baez more like a Judy Collins or like a Buffy St. Marie, like other female folk singers of the 60s who are really great, but they don't have the same, I think, name recognition that Joan Baez has. Not just because she was associated with Dylan, but also because she was so strong. She's such a strong foil and gave it back to him, like, especially after the fact in her songs and in documentaries. And again, like, she's like my favorite person to see talk about Bob Dylan. I mean, she's so articulate about it. 
she's also like really candid. Like she she doesn't just blindly revere him. Like she will take him down a peg in a very sort of smart and I think justified way. So yeah, I think that association has definitely helped her over the years. When we go to the pro Bob Dylan side, I mean, <laughs> is this like, I mean, look, I think we've both have made clear that like he was a jerk uh, in 1965. And like, you can watch Don't Look Back. And it's pretty clear that he's acting like a jerk uh, in that movie. But then you measure that against just the weight of everything he's created. If he had retired after Blonde on Blonde, you know, that the, the, the mythical motorcycle accident that he had that forced him to go into hiding because essentially his life had gotten too crazy at that point. He, he had to find a way to save himself. If he had just retired then, he would, all, he would be a legend. Like if it was just about like those first seven or so albums. And yet he has gone on to create music for like 50 years after that. God, can you imagine? I mean, having that musical legacy plus the Sid Barrett level mystique. Oh, my God. Right. And I kind of go back to that, like with him and Joan Baez, where, again, <laughs> I feel like I'm carrying water for Bob Dylan being a bad boyfriend here. Uh, I don't mean to do that. Again, I feel like he was in the wrong. And I, I, I feel bad for Joan Baez at that time. But. I will say that it's unimaginable to me what it was like to be Bob Dylan in 1965. You know, what would that have been like? Like, what does that do to your health? Right. I mean, and it's kind of amazing that he, like, lived <laughs> at all. Oh, yeah. You know, because I think that the kind of attention that he had, it just goes beyond normal pop stardom. It was like he was a pop star, but he was also like a messiah figure at the same time. Like, people thought that he was actually going to save the world. You know, that he had to write political songs because, like, we needed them. Like, people felt like they needed Bob Dylan to do certain things, uh, you know, to make the world a better place. I guess that's what people look at for Taylor Swift now. Like, we expect Taylor Swift to save the world uh, by endorsing the right candidate. I guess she's, like, maybe she's the closest thing to that kind of level of, like, Bob Dylan mystique. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you, you really can't compare anyone to Bob Dylan, I think, at that time. And you see how infuriating it must be for, for Joan, who you know, literally is out there getting arrested and on the front lines down in Mississippi trying to make a difference. And you can see, you know, you can understand her frustration for like, you know, why is everyone looking to him? I'm the one who actually knows what's happening and is out there. She would say in interviews, you know, I don't think Bob ever went to a, a march by himself in his life. You know, that wasn't, yeah. that wasn't who he was. So you can totally understand not only just why she'd be pissed off at him for all the personal stuff, but just, you know, what does this guy know? I'm the one who's actually out there talking about this stuff on the front lines. So Yeah. Well, there's, there's that great line that she has in No Direction Home where she's like, whenever I go to a bee-in or a sit-in or a lion or a jail-in, <laughs> yeah. uh, people always ask me, is Bob coming? And she's like, no, He's never going to come. He's never going to come. <laughs> like, why would he come to this random event? Like, he's never, you know... Yeah, he was there with Martin Luther King in 1963. Because I dragged him. And he's like, all right, I did it. You know, yeah, it's like, if you're, yeah. with, you're, I was with MLK, nothing's going to top that. So, you know, I'm going to go instead, you know, totally reinvent rock music and uh, change the course of human history. That, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you guys can go to your protest. I'm going to change an art form uh, for the better. So when we look at these two together, I feel like... Again, for me, what I love about it is I still look at it as a great love story. You know, even though they didn't end up together and even though they weren't really together that long, I go back to the Star is Born analogy. You know, like there's something really attractive to, I think, all of us about a story where you have a really famous person and a less famous person and they fall in love 
But then there's this weird career dynamic that ends up getting in the way, you know, and that movie has been remade four times, you know, so people obviously are attracted to it. And there's that sort of classic quality to the Bob Dylan and Joan Baez story, too. I hope they do one final duet because I don't think they've sang together since that 84 tour. I hope they, they do one more time. Something something huge. Maybe the next inauguration. Who knows? Well, love is just a four letter word, as they say, <laughs> Jordan. And Bob, I feel like, would have other four-letter words uh, in response to that. But who <laughs> yes. knows? Who knows? Never say never. And I, it would be amazing to see. But maybe it, it's also more fun to think about it than it would be to actually see it. You never know. That's but true. if that happens, we'll record an Emergency Rivals follow-up episode <laughs> and break it down for all of you. Until then, thank you all, all of you for listening to this episode of Rivals. And we will be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a mm -hmm. hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.